Stuart. Good evening, everyone. I'm feeling a little bit um, in awe. I, I don't really know what, whether I should go after those notices. It was so well presented. You know, it's, um, it's, it's a little bit scary going after Martiana. Anyway, our passage today, we've got a fantastic passage. So if you like to read the Bible on your Bible app, on your phone, please do feel to get your phone out. No one will think that you're on Twitter or some other thing. Um, just look very sincere when you look at your phone, and we'll know that you're in the Bible app. Or if you'd like a paper Bible, I'm sure somebody would put your hand up and somebody would bring you one, I'm sure. Okay, uh, you better know what the verses are that we're looking at. That might help. It's Luke 24, verse 1 to 12, the first 12 verses of Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I remember as a child growing up in Oswestry in Shropshire. Um, for those who are geography-minded, that's halfway up the country next to the Welsh border, sort of the very west of the Midlands. Go to Birmingham and turn left from here. Um, and when I lived there as a teenager, I loved it when the fair came to town. Anybody remember when a fair came to town? Um, all these big lorries, I think we all remember it in the wreck as well for Flowers Day. Um, and my favourite on these travelling fairs was the waltzer that just swung you backwards and forwards. However, this travelling ride was missing one ride that I loved most of all which you only get in a static fair, and that's the roller coaster. Who likes roller coasters? And it wasn't, however, until we went to places like Alton Towers that I discovered that their joys. I'm going to say some names to you. Just close your eyes and feel yourself on these rides. Stealth, Swarm, The Big One, Colossus, Air, The Smiler, 
Dragon's Fury, Vampire, Oblivion, Nemesis. Are you there? Anybody feeling travel sick yet? Well, as I was preparing this talk on this amazing passage we have today, as I was thinking through what had happened to this small group of women on that bright Sunday morning, I couldn't help think what an amazing roller coaster roller coaster ride of emotions they went through. Just put yourself in their shoes. That morning, they were grieving. They were so sad. Their friend, their teacher had died. And they were doing what so many women would have done in those days. They took spices to prepare Jesus' dead body. This would have sadly been done very often, and they would have been very used to it. And in the warm midday, middle, middle um, eastern temperatures, dead bodies got very smelly very quickly. And that's the spices to hide that smell. And so this was the custom. But this wasn't just anyone. This was their Jesus, their teacher, their leader, their friend, the man they had traveled with for three years the man they love so dearly. Then, shock and disgust as they got to the tomb. The stone's been rolled away. Now, there was a dreadful, dreadful habit at the time of people stealing bodies out of tombs. Could you imagine? Their hero, Jesus, had been stolen. This is what they thought. This was the worst of their, their worries. Someone had stolen Jesus' body. Roller coaster ride continues. Then, as they go in, they see the two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning. They were clearly angels. You can see it in their fright. The women bowed down with their faces to the ground. Then the angels speak. And what they say is the crux of this passage, the very important element of this passage, and this is key. They say, why do you look for the living among the dead? Up to that point, that's what they were doing. They were caring for the dead. But these angels were, imagine, they knew Jesus had risen. There was celebration in heaven over Jesus rising. Why do you look for the living among the dead? You can imagine their beaming faces when they said it. He's not here. He has risen. This changes everything. Jesus is not dead. Jesus' body hadn't been stolen. For the angels, this moment is the moment all history was building up to. And it was the moment that all our future was depending on. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Then trying to help out the women more, these angels say to them, remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Jesus had actually said this many times to his disciples. Just in Luke, these are recorded in Luke chapter 9, 17, and 18. But maybe this is the first time that the penny dropped for them. 
we hear from Luke this penny drop moment when Luke says, then they remembered his words. This is the moment they get it. Why were they looking for the living among the dead? They remembered Jesus' words. I get the sense at that point they dropped everything, spices all over the floor, and ran back to the disciples, to Jesus' followers. It says they came back from the tomb. They told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. Of course, Judas was no longer with them. That's why there's 11. What a roller coaster ride from the deepest grief to the most overwhelming and overflowing joy. But this is their roller coaster ride. Where are you this evening in your connection with this story? Well, I think there's two mistakes I think we can make when we engage with this report from Luke that's nearly 2,000 years old now. Firstly, we could deny the miracle of Jesus' being raised from the dead. And secondly, we could deny what that means, what the meaning of Jesus raising from the dead is. So we're going to look at those two. First of all, denying the uh, miracle of Jesus being raised ever happening. So the women came early on that bright morning in Jerusalem with no expectation but to find a very bed but a very dead Jesus lying in the tomb, frankly starting to decay. And although, as we've already talked about, how Jesus had told them on multiple times that he'd said he must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again, they yet had not got this. They were expecting it to find their dead friend. But the experience then and now is that, of course, dead people stay dead. If we consider other faiths, for example, Islam, all the leaders of these world faiths, before and after, have died and stayed dead. After which, their followers have their writings and their records of their words, but essentially, they follow a person who's died. They can be remembered as great teachers, maybe philosophers. But Christianity is fundamentally different. We claim that Jesus is alive, having come back to life on that morning and is still alive with the Father and Holy Spirit today. And this is a unique claim amongst all faiths. And one that is absolutely fundamental to our faith and our trust in the living God. Now, you may be sitting here and maybe saying to yourself, this is all very good, but I'm a modern person, and there must be a scientific um, explanation to what happened. Uh, maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Maybe something happened. What, what, what's going on? People don't come back from the dead. And then you may go on to think, well, these are also ancient people, and they're very gullible. Um, but frankly, this just isn't true. And I hope to tackle that in a few arguments. Back then, resurrection was just as uncommon. People didn't come back from the dead then either. Unless there's a couple of times Jesus was involved when they came back. But generally speaking, people did not come back from the dead. Like now, it just didn't happen. And people wouldn't have believed it 
unless there was very, very good evidence. Luke knew this and knew his readers would all question this. If you look towards the end of our passage in verse 11, you'll see the reaction from the male disciples. We can see that even those male disciples of Jesus are highly skeptical, skeptical at best. Um, let me sit, read this to you. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, just for a couple of minutes, just imagine this passage is not true. Just imagine Luke was making this all up. Then there is no way that Luke would have made it up that women would be the first witnesses of the risen Lord Jesus. We can see that reaction from the male disciples. It's nonsense. This world that Jesus was born into was a world dominated by men. Women at that time weren't allowed to be witnesses. Their evidence was not allowed in courts or in any of the legal system. Their very existence lived through a man, their father or their husband. Their evidence was not allowed. They had no rights, no voice. Luke would have been stupid to make up a passage where women who were not trusted as witnesses were the first witnesses. So why does he do it? Well, I can only conclude that it was women who discovered Jesus in that first case. The next thing, too, is that um, you'd never have in that made-up story, if it was made up, the future leaders of the church showing such um, stupidity to not believe them. We wouldn't have had that reported when they said the women were speaking nonsense. In addition, look in verse 10. Here Luke tells his audience exactly who the women are. He names them. It's it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Why would he do that? Well, the reason is that these women were actual eyewitnesses. Luke is saying, look, you can go and find them. They might be a bit older now, but you can go and find them and ask them for yourselves. And his first readers would have been able to do that. It's quite possible that they would have gone and found them and found their very, you know, first-hand experience of that morning. All the evidence is here in the Gospels. Not just in this passage, but Luke would go on in this Gospel in the very next passage to describe Jesus meeting with two disciples as they walked on the road from Emmaus to Jerusalem. One of them named Cleopas. Luke might well be again saying, go and find Cleopas and ask him. And then Jesus would meet with all of the disciples. And Jesus said to the disciples then, he said about himself, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, adding, you are witnesses of these things. In the continuation of the story, Luke, who also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, would write that Jesus continued to present himself to them, his followers, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, 
That's an enormous amount of time. And spoke about the kingdom of God. Paul would also write to the Corinthian church. He wrote, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Caiaphas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, appearing to me. That was when uh, Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So in that early church, there were so many witnesses. Between 500 and 600 eyewitnesses that that early church could go and talk to. There is so much evidence to deny that... that that tonight that he, he didn't rise from the dead is flying in the face of that evidence. There's one other piece of evidence that I want to bring up, and that's the effect that the risen Jesus had on his followers. As we read about the early church in the Acts of the Apostles and many letters from Paul and, other, and others, as new churches sprung up all over the known world, we see that the church met with huge opposition. Christians were arrested, imprisoned, and even executed. All but one of the 11 disciples were killed for their belief in this living Lord Jesus. There was no doubt in their mind whatsoever that he was risen. How many do you think would have gone to their deaths over a lie? They went to their deaths knowing that Jesus was risen and would be with them in paradise. Organizations that are based on a lie fail. However, the church grew and grew and continues to grow to this day. Christianity is the largest faith by far globally, with more than two billion believers celebrating this Jesus who those two angels said to the frightened women 2,000 years ago about him. They said, he must be delivered over to the hand of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. So if we conclude that he was raised from the dead, then the next mistake we can make is not getting the meaning behind his resurrection and death. Look again at those words I've just read, those words of the angels. And there's one key word I think we should concentrate on. They said, he must be delivered over to the hand of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Notice that second word, must. This is really important for us to notice. Some look at Jesus' death and consider it an amazing example of love for his disciples. And of course it is. Maybe the grandest example of love ever. An example of outstanding love for his friend, his friends and for the people of Israel. And also an example of love for all of us. Jesus had said earlier that greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And indeed, Jesus shows his love for all of us in him freely laying down his life for all of us, his friends. But actually, 
it's much, much more than just an example of enormous love. And it's that vital word that the angel says, he must. So if you're sitting here and thinking that Christianity and the Bible is a great set of rules for how to live a good life, and if you think that generally, you know, if throughout life we are mostly good people, then, and so it's going to be okay because we're mostly good, we're good enough, then God will accept us into his heaven when he we die. Then I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Good enough is not good enough. God demands from us more than we can ever possibly achieve by ourselves to deserve to go to heaven. He demands perfection throughout every moment of our lives. I, for one, don't stand a chance to get into heaven. This sounds so depressing because I know that I can barely go a day without messing up. Without Jesus, we are all hopelessly lost. Only someone who is perfect can pay for our messed up lives. And Jesus is the only person who ever was perfect. Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully human. God knows us intimately and knows that we are messed up, being selfish and self-centered. So he always had this plan that he in Jesus must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified and on the third day be raised again. He must because he... He just loves us so much that he must. There is no other way to make us clean. So friends, do we live like this? Celebrating that Jesus had to die for us. Living life knowing that we are clean and guilt-free through and in Jesus alone because of everything he had to do for us. Because without him, we don't stand a chance. Are we living like that? Or are we still trying to push on consciously or unconsciously on that hopeless pursuit of trying to earn something that we don't have a hope in heaven of achieving? Earning our own place in heaven. This is the key question of life and the one where Christianity differs from all other faiths. In my last job, but one, um, I had a Muslim friend and colleague called Ayaz, lovely chap, and he was extremely open about his faith with me. It was great. We had some marvelous conversations about what I believed and what he believed, and I think he really listened, and I tried to really listen to him. Well, he shared what would happen to his thinking on that judgment day when he stands in front of God and what his admission to heaven would be based on. And for him, it's based solely on this balance of how much good he had done in one hand and how much bad he'd done in another. It's just a scales for him. And then God will decide if he gets in or not. And my friend has absolutely no confidence whatsoever of whether he will get in or not. But he believes God decides this based on his actions throughout his whole life. 
How scary. Christianity fundamentally doesn't work like that. On that judgment day, if you haven't accepted Jesus into your life, you will never be rated good enough to be allowed entrance. Everyone except Jesus fails the test. But friends, the good news is that the flip side of this is that if you do accept Jesus into your life, then you are washed clean by him. And on that judgment day, the gates of heaven will spring open for you, all because of how good he is. Not because of what we do, but rather because all Jesus did, because he loves us so much. Hopefully now you see the importance of that tiny word. He must be delivered. This is God's rescue plan for all men, all women, and all children. So do we live like this? Do we live like he died for us? Do we live knowing that that day will come when he accepts us into heaven with open arms? Okay, so you might have been sitting here and you may have been agreeing with my two points. Yes, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And yes, I understand why Jesus had to die. But there may still be something missing in your life. Really, really understanding why Jesus died is not a matter of intellect or head. It's fundamentally a matter of our heart and a matter of a relationship with Jesus. Understanding why Jesus died affects every minute of every day of our lives and changes the very way we view life here on earth. Let me paint two pictures to show two extremes of not living knowing this in our heart has on us. Picture one. You may find yourself from day to day keep saying to yourself that you deserve better in your life. You may wonder why you don't get that promotion you hoped for at work or those exam results or not uh, getting the friendship circles that you want. Fundamentally, you think that you deserve more than you're getting. Then fundamentally, if this is you, you're not living like Jesus had to die for you. Fundamentally, we don't deserve anything. Yet God gives us eternal life through Jesus. Following Jesus gives a life that is purposeful, meaningful, deeply joyful, a joy that is beyond our physical circumstances, beyond success, beyond failure. As Jesus himself said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. In Matthew 13, Jesus compares knowing the kingdom of God to finding a treasure in a field that's so precious that once found, you would sell everything to have that field and the treasure. If you know Jesus, you are already rich with that treasure. Knowing Jesus makes us more rich than any amount of gold. And surely this changes our attitude to gaining stuff in this world when we already have eternal treasure. So when we really understand why he had to die, then we don't live looking for what we deserve. Rather, we live in gratitude for all that God has given us and everything else he blesses us with 
only just leads us to worship and being so grateful for everything he gives us. A perpetual attitude of gratitude. Or alternatively, let me paint picture two. And this is the other extreme of that first picture I painted. It might be that you're really suffering from low esteem. If you're constantly feeling that actually you keep letting Jesus down by trying and trying to live like Jesus, but constantly failing, then you're not alone. Falling into that same sin again and again. Saying to yourself, if only I could live up to being a Christian, being like Christ, then I would be okay. Friends, there is a reason why in so many of our services we say confession together. This is because we're all constantly failing. Jesus knows us intimately and also knows what it is to be tempted. When we are tempted, we so often give in to that temptation, but Jesus never did. So he knows the extremes of temptation. Jesus just longs for us to stop struggling on our own, but come to him with our troubles, honestly opening up to him and simply seeking forgiveness from him. He longs to take us back and work with us to bring us peace. These are the two extremes, expecting good because we deserve it, or expecting bad because we feel rubbish. If either of these pictures are you, then you may be understanding God's rescue plan intellectually, but not in your heart, not in your very being, not in the way you live life. If that's you today, can I first offer you comfort? You are not alone. That's the third time I think I've said that. We are here for you. And after the service, if you'd like to talk or pray with someone, we'd love to do be there for you. But I'd also like to offer you a good challenge. Between this Easter, 2023, and the next Easter, 2024, can I challenge you to really spend time in these 12 months, moving this head knowledge to your heart? Look what Peter did at the end of our passage when he didn't believe the women. It said, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what happened. Peter ran to find out. He couldn't help himself. He just had to find out, and then spent time wondering to himself. Can I encourage you to do the same? There's a lovely line in Psalm 34, and it says, Taste and see the Lord is good. Let me give you a little example on this. I really like French cooking. But if you, never, if you want to understand French cooking, or any country's cooking, you're never going to get it by reading a cookbook. You're not. You might understand how sauces are made, but you're not going to understand the fundamentals. You have to taste it. And that's what the author of Psalm 34 understood about God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not know academically that he's good, but taste and see the Lord is good. So friends, we need to start to trust him at his word, to deliberately lean on him, to open up to him, to learn more about him by being proactive 
about learning about faith in him. Attend an alpha course. Join a home group. Engage better with the home group you're already in or the small small group. Make time to know Jesus and pray. Jesus loves you so much that he must be delivered over to the hand of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. He did this for you, friends. He longs for you to really engage with him. He longs to be invited into every aspect of our lives, opening up to him in real, honest prayer, sharing with him our hopes and dreams, yes, but also our struggles and doubts. He knows them all or anyway, and he loves you the same. However bad we think we are, he still adores us. This is the Jesus who died for you. So can I just finish by saying that response that Christians all over the world will today be saying. When I say, Alleluia, Christ is risen, can you respond? He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen and bless you.